So for the first couple hundred years that Israel was in the land of Israel, 480 years to be exact, God did not choose a place for him to um, dwell. Um, our tradition is that he will only choose a place for himself to dwell after a king is established. And for the first 400 years, a little over 400 years when they came into the promised land, they were not ruled by kings. They were ruled by, led by shoftim or judges, which essentially led a loose federation of the tribes. And it wasn't until King Saul was appointed as king that they, over 400 years after they entered the land, they finally had a king. Throughout most of that period, they had a temporary temple in the town of Shiloh. However, um, that temple was destroyed by the Philistines about after 350 years. And um, for a period of about 50 years, there was no temple anywhere until, um, and it was, well, they had these kind of temporary temples that moved from place to place until um, David became king. Now, when David became king, David, with the on the instructions of the prophet Samuel, chose the spot that God will choose, as, will, which will be the permanent spot of the temple that is known today as the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount was chosen, um, again, by the prophet Samuel. At the time that David chose it, it was a threshing floor, a threshing floor belonging to a Jebusite by the name of Aravna. And David bought that threshing floor from the Jebusite. The Jebusites who lived around the Temple Mount did not want to let him into the city. And David had to fight to get into the city and uh, then um, established the city of Jerusalem, which is south of the Temple Mount and lower down the mountain as his capital. The mountain then slopes up on the, um, on the western side of the Temple Mount. The mountain then continues to slope up, which is where the modern city of Jerusalem is. But the original city of Jerusalem was south of this Temple Mount. So David chooses this hill as the, um, or this mountain, as the place where God is, God's permanent presence is going to dwell. And so, and, and so, um, and so God chooses this. So uh, how did David know that this is the place where God is going to choose? How did, why did he choose this place? So firstly, this we are told, the Talmud tells us, this is the place from which the entire world was, creation, was created. And in fact, there is a stone that jutted out in the Holy of Holies that was called the Evan Shasi, or the foundation stone that was the foundational stone of the entire world. It's a very special spot. Where that stone is today, we don't know. The, um, in the middle of the Dome of the Rock, there is this massive stone. And um, there are views, both in Jewish law and in definitely in Muslim law, that that was the spot where the temple stood on that very stone. We don't know if that is true or not. We would only know if we were able to dig and find out. Um, so, so now the... Um, so that's where the world was created from. Adam himself was made of dust of the earth. God formed Adam out of dust and breathed into him a soul of life, created from dust of the earth. Where was the dust taken from? From the place where the altar stood in the temple. So that spot exactly was where Adam was formed. Many, many, many years later, um, 
Well, we're told Adam, when he was created, brought sacrifices to God on that spot where the, te- where the altar would later stand. Many, many years later, um, Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he was told to go to Moriah, to the mountain that God will show him. Doesn't give us any detail. But many years later, when Solomon built the temple, we are told Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. So our tradition is it was in the exact same spot where Abraham had slaughtered, had almost slaughtered Isaac, or God had stopped him, was in that very same spot on the Temple Mount. So it was a very unique spot, uh, a spot that God had chosen. How did David know where that spot was? So Solomon's going to build a temple, but David is going to choose the Temple Mount. Um, David really wants to build a temple, chooses Jerusalem as his capital, and the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, I know you want to build a temple to God, but God does not want you to build a temple because you are a man of war. You have killed many people in your life. His temple will be a temple of peace. So therefore, the temple can only be built by a man of peace. Your son Solomon, his name will be peace. Shalom comes from the word shalom, peace. And um, he will build the temple. So David, though, um, David said, well, at least I'm going to build the, get ready for the building of the temple, which he did by flattening out the hill, turning it into a plateau, and building the foundations of the temple. And then he brought the temporary temple, the Mishkan, which at the time was in a place called Kiryat Ya'arim, and he brought it over to the Temple Mount and placed the temporary temple there until Solomon builds the um, permanent temple in that spot. So David chose the spot. Solomon is going to actually build the temple. How did he know where to build it? Well, firstly, the prophet Samuel is a prophet, so he's able to tell us exactly where it's supposed to go. So David was, knew the following. The temple had to be in the land of Benjamin, the land of the tribe of Benjamin, because Jacob had promised Benjamin in his blessings to all of his children, his last will and testament to all his children before they died, he had promised Benjamin that the temple would be in, um, sorry, not Jacob, Moses. And his last will and testament before he died had promised the tribe of Benjamin that the temple would be in their portion. So it had to be in the portion of the tribe of Benjamin, the temple itself. It was, it was also supposed to be at the edge of the tribe of Judah. So the city around the temple, the city of Jerusalem, would be in the tribe of Judah. So it had to be a mountain that bordered Jerusalem and that bordered Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. Now the town of Jerusalem was a town on the border between Benjamin and Judah, where the northern side belonged to Benjamin, the southern side belonged to Judah. Now, on the now then in Moses' blessing, Moses says that the temple will stand on the shoulders. What does it mean the temple will stand on the shoulders? So it means kind of it will stand on a hill sitting next to a bigger mountain, like your shoulder, which kind of sits next to your head, which is much higher up. It means it's going to sit on a hill jutting out of a larger mountain. So if you go to Jerusalem, you will see the Mount of Jerusalem kind of slopes up um, west of the Temple Mount. So it's pretty high up. As you come down from what today is the old city, 
but that's the city that was built by the Ottomans in the 1500s. When you come down, you'll see it kind of slopes down to the Temple Mount, and then there's kind of a little hill that now is a flat hill, a flat plateau that kind of juts out of the side of the mountain. So it has to be a hill jutting out of the side of the mountain. So with all of those markers, they were able to identify the Temple Mount as the ideal place for, um, as the Mount Moriah and the place that God had wanted to build the temple. And, Sol and the prophet Saul, uh, Samuel, sorry, approved of this place as the spot of the Temple Mount. So David builds the, sorry, David sets aside the Temple Mount, built this plateau. Solomon then builds his temple here in Jerusalem. Solomon built his temple. Solomon's temple stood. He built it 480 years after the exodus from Egypt, or according to our tradition, um, about the year, um, according to our tradition, about the year 450 BCE. He built the temple. Um, sorry, the, my mistake. My mistake. About the year... 860 BCE, 860, much further back, 860 BCE or 20, almost 2,900 years ago, he built a temple in Jerusalem. The temple stood for 410 years until the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in 450 BCE. About 450 BCE, the um, Romans capture the, the Babylonians capture the city of Jerusalem and destroy Solomon's temple, take all the Jews, almost all the Jews from Israel, and schlep them to Babylon, where they settled and they lived for many, many years. Then, after some years later, some 50-something years after the temple had been destroyed, 70 years after there was first the Romans captured, first the Babylonians, sorry, captured Jerusalem and exiled the king, whose name was Yehoiakim, together with all the dignitaries and many of the Kohanim and most of the wealthy people are all, and the prophets are all exiled to Babylon. And just the poor people are left under the reign of King Tzidkiyahu as a Babylonian um, vassal state with still the temple. And then some years later, they come back and uh, the, the, the Jews had rebelled again. They come back, destroy the temple, and bring the rest of the Jews to Jerusalem. Some 70 years after the first exile, King Cyrus, who has captured Babylon and has built the Persian Empire that stretches from Greece to India, massive empire, um, believes that he um, was the man ordained by God to rebuild God's temple. And he instructs the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. And he even gives them money from the temple, temple treasuries and sends Persian soldiers to protect them. And they come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild. They begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And large numbers come back and re begin to rebuild the temple. They start rebuilding a couple years. King Cyrus dies. He is... Um, uh, he is uh, followed by King Ahasuerus, or King Ahasuerus, we call him in Hebrew. And King Ahasuerus is not as much of a fan of the Jews as Cyrus is, and he puts an end to the building of the temple. He is convinced by locals that lived, that had settled in Israel while the Jews were gone, um, 
known as Samaritans, that the Jews are up to no good and they're going to build the temple and fortify the city of Jerusalem and then rebel against it. So he stops the building of the city of Jerusalem. And so the city stops, the building stops, the building of the temple stops. Many Jews move back to Babylon um, the, um, and the kind of small colony now in Jerusalem start dwindling. And then some years later, uh, some years later, the next king of Persia, Darius, um, now uh, uh, decides that he has been, he's convinced uh, by Jewish leadership in Babylon that God wants him to allow the rebuilding of the temple. And indeed, he allows the rebuilding of the temple. The Jews resume the rebuilding of the temple. He allows for the great Jewish leader, Ezra, to lead all of the Jewish leadership with many wealthy Jews and um, a group of some 40 or 50,000 Jews leave Babylon, go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Later, he lets one of his chief ministers, Nehemiah, um, go and gives him a lot of money and, um, uh, to go and help um, because it was sl uh, they were slacking in the rebuilding to go and help, um, kind of, um, help them along and uh, reinvigorate them. And so finally, about 70 years after the original temple was destroyed, the second temple is now rebuilt in 350 BCE. Only a few years after the second temple is rebuilt, only a couple years later, the Persian Empire collapses to the army of Alexander of Macedonia. He is a Macedonian Greek army that essentially comes from the edge of the Persian Empire and, and, um, and captures the entire Persian Empire in just a couple years, giving him reign all the way across to India and starting from going out uh, from Greece. And including in his new empire, he now has um, he now has he now has uh, Israel and Jerusalem, and now Israel and Jerusalem become a um, Greek state where there is again still the Jewish temple. He attempts to even put a Jewish a, a statue of himself in the Jewish temple, as he did in every temple wherever he came. And the, as the um, tale goes, um, the leadership at the time, Shimon Hatzadik, who was the Jewish leader at the time, convinces Alexander the Great says, don't put your idol in the temple. I have a better idea for you. What's your better idea? He says, I have, you put an idol in the temple, as soon as you die, the idol will be gone. I'm going to issue a decree that all Jewish boys born in the next year must be named Alexander. Jews name after parents and grandparents, after family. So Alexander will remain a Jewish name for all future times that will give you an immortality that you're not going to get by just putting a statue of yourself. So he agreed to that. Um, and indeed, Alexander today is a very common Jewish name and has always been. So, um, so the temple is now, um, but the temple is still standing. Um, after Alexander's death, the Greek empire is split into many, many different Greek kingdoms uh, by his different generals. Israel falls under the reign of the Ptolemies, who are ruling from Egypt, Alexandria, um, and um, Israel for many years is under the reign of the Ptolemies. Um, after some time, the Seleucids, who are ruling from Antioch in northern, um, in northern Syria, 
um, they capture Jerusalem from the Ptolemies. They uh, begin to make trouble for the Jews and at a certain point forbid Jews from practicing Judaism and take over the temple and turn it into an idolatrous temple. And at that point, the Jews rebelled and were victorious against the Greek armies and uh, managed to declare independence. And that is for, that's the, for which we celebrate the uh, festival of Hanukkah. And so they restored the temple. Um, the Israel was then ruled by the Maccabees or the Hashmonai family um, for some hundred years after that until um, there is a war between two Hashmonai um, claims to the throne and um, one of them invites um, the Romans to come and um, resolve the debate. The Romans come and they stay. Israel essentially becomes a nominally independent state but with a large <laughs> Roman military presence um, with time. Um, eventually, a Edomite who came from a, or Idumean, the Romans called them, who um, came from a southern state um, south of Israel, um, his name is Herod, convinces the, Rome, get, con, um, convinces the Romans to allow him to stage a um, coup, and he seizes the throne of Israel and, uh, uh, with Roman help. And then after his death, the Romans essentially make his children king in name only, but make Israel essentially a state of um, Rome. Um, the Jews soon rebel against the Romans after a lot of persecution, and um, the Romans come about the year uh, in the 60s. This is about the year 69 or so, or 70, and the Romans destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Some 60 years later, the temple is now destroyed, um, the Jews, um, it appears, still continue perhaps to bring sacrifices on the Temple Mount. They definitely still continue to pray on the Temple Mount. And, and so the Jews continue to pray on the Temple Mount. Um, the, some 60 years later, in the late 120s or early 130s, um, the Emperor of Israel, Hadrian, no, sorry, the Emperor of Rome, Hadrian, um, decides is fighting the Parthians. The Parthians were rulers in uh, over Persia, Babylon. And he is attempting to con conquer um, Persia. And it, there was, they fought for some two, three hundred years. Rome and the Parthians, it was on really for the entire Roman Empire, they were fighting the, the Persians and the Parthians. And so there is a war between the Persians and the Parthians. And Babylon, of course, remains the center of Jewish life. It has a very large Jewish community. There's a Jewish autonomous state in Babylon. A lot of Jews living in Babylon. Jews controlled the, what was then called the Silk Route, the route that goes from the trade route going from China all the way to um, Europe. And, so, and it was centered in Babylon. It was kind of the center of where it all came together. And um, it was all centered around Babylon. So Hadrian comes up with this great idea. Instead of being so... Um, rough with Jews as they had been, as Romans had been historically. Romans were very anti-Semitic. They hated Jews. They just had this hatred. They got it from the Greeks. Greeks had this hatred. Um, uh, he's going to be very friendly to the Jews. That way he will get Jewish support in Israel for his war against the Parthians, which was not very far, a little north of Israel, um, where they were fighting 
um, in the northern Euphrates, um, about where they're all fighting today, where ISIS is and where they're fighting today. Um, that's where the big wars were. And uh, he was also hoping to get uh, support of the Jewish community in Babylon. Um, and so he um, becomes very favorable to the Jews and he allows the Jews to rebuild the temple. And so this is about 120s. And he says, the Jews are going to be allowed to rebuild the second, the, you'll build now a third temple. The Jews are very excited. They all gather in Jerusalem ready to build the temple. It was, of course, on condition that they offer material support to the Romans, which they did. However, on condition that the Jews of Babylon support, which they didn't. And um, the Romans um, are not very successful in their campaign against the Parthians. So Hadrian is very disappointed. And who does he blame, of course? You blame the Jews, right? So he blames the Jews and he, um, because the Jews of Babylon didn't cooperate and the Jews of Israel didn't help as, or Judea as it was called, they didn't help as much as they should. So he says, that's it, no more rebuilding the temple. Now you can imagine, this was just 60 years after the temple was destroyed, not even 50 something years after the temple was destroyed. And they were so excited. They, all Jews believed they were about to build the temple. And suddenly they're told they can't build the temple anymore. You could imagine the disappointment. Jews were very upset. Jews went after Roman soldiers, attacking Roman soldiers. The Romans, who as it is, were blaming the Jews, started attacking Jews. And Hadrian then issued a long series of anti-Jewish edicts and um, all sorts of anti-Jewish edicts, both in Jewish practice, um, forbidding certain Jewish practices, and in giving, uh, re um, requiring Jews to pay huge taxes and uh, unfair, uh, other unfair laws. And so the Jews, um, the Jews' anger against the Romans reached a boiling point at that point, and um, there was a great fearless leader, Shimon Bar Kuziva, or Shimon Bar Kochba, as he's called, who um, leads a rebellion against the Romans, successfully <coughs> drives the Romans out of Judea and declares his Jerusalem, his capital. He even minted coins with his name on it. Well, Jerusalem is his capital. We have those, we have found so many of those coins and, um, and uh, is ready to start rebuilding the temple. Unfortunately, um, Unfortunately, the Romans came back, brought their military, all of their, when they brought their military from different ends of the Roman Empire to, to fully bear on a rebellion in Judea. They took a rebellion in Judea very seriously. Both they took a rebellion in Judea very seriously, as you can imagine. Judea, unlike Britain, which they always had trouble with, or Germania, um, Judea was in the center of their empire, it was much more central, and um, it also, there were Jews spread out throughout their empire, Jews were held in very high esteem throughout the Roman Empire, so it was a very serious thing, and um, they crushed the rebellion very brutally, and they, um, and in the last stand of Bar Kokhba around Beitar, which is south of Jerusalem, um, they killed out every single person left there, we spoke about that a few weeks ago. Um, and so um, they decided not only that they're going to stamp out Judaism, they changed the name of Judea to Syria Philis, uh, Palestina and uh, to make sure that it was no longer related to Jews. 
They made it illegal to be Jewish or practice any form of Judaism whatsoever. Um, on, the pay, on the punishment of death, if you were caught doing anything Jewish, um, they raised the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They totally raised the Temple Mount, forbade any Jewish worship on the Temple Mount. And that continued for about 15 years until the Romans decided that they're better off having the Jews on their side than constantly fighting the Jews. As you can imagine, Jews fought back, uh, and Jews were pretty um, well-placed throughout the Roman Empire. And they decided to be more benevolent to the Jews. There was a new <coughs> emperor, Antoninus, who was a um, much better person and had good relationships with Jew Jewish leaders. And so uh, the situation in, in, in Israel changed, and, gradual, and Jews were allowed to practice Judaism, and Jews were once again allowed to go to the Temple Mount in order to pray. Now this situation lasted for about another 150 years until gradually things started getting worse. But then about 300 Rome adapts Christianity. Now once Rome becomes Christian, suddenly Jews are now no longer wanted in the Roman Empire because they refuse to accept Christianity. They refuse to ac accept the Christian Messiah. And so Jews are no longer wanted. Even more so, while until now the, Roman, the only problem the Romans had with the Jewish holy places was that they encouraged Jews to rebel. That's why they destroyed it or um, kept us away from them. They encouraged us to be independent. Now the Christians claimed as being, uh, believing that they are the replacement of the chosen people, they themselves claimed rights to our holy places. And they themselves claimed the right to the temple mount. And they built a big church on the Temple Mount to replace our temple. And no longer were Jews allowed to pray anymore on the Temple Mount. Jews were forbidden from going on the Temple Mount. Jews were forbidden from praying on the Temple Mount. And Jews were really forbidden from going to any of the Jewish special places in Israel. Um, and Jews were heavily persecuted in Israel. And this lasted with di at different levels from about 300 for, a th for 300 years during which there was a lot of persecution for Jews um, throughout the e what, what became the Eastern Roman Empire. Rome by now had split into two. The Eastern Roman Empire or, the, or Byzantine, and uh, life was pretty rough for the Jews. Um, and gradually the Jewish community dwindled as the Jewish community in Babylon continued to grow and develop and um, was highly successful. Jewish the Jewish community in Israel really, really dwindled. Until the early 600s, this is about, we're talking now about the 620s or 630s, um, the um, Roman, the, now the Byzantines and the Persians continue to fight with each other. Roman, Rome did manage to ca capture Me Mesopotamia in the 200s and hold on to it for a couple years, not for very long, and then the Persians took it back. And by now, the 600s have been fighting. The Romans and Persians have been fighting now for close to 1,000 years. And, or now it's the Byzantines. And the Persians see an opportunity. Byzantine is um, gradually fallen apart. And the Persians see an opportunity to capture, um, to, um, capture Israel. And so at the time, the Jews had an autonomous state along the Euphrates River in Babylon. Um, which they had had by now for close to for about a thousand years. It was led by the Reish Galuta, the Jewish leader at the time. 
And so the, what was it sorry? What was it called? The Jewish state? It was called the Jewish state. The Gola. Reish Galuta was the, was the, literally the head of the exile. The Jewish state was the Gola, was the exile, and he was the head of the Gola, the head of the exile. He was essentially, the way the Persian Empire worked is it had many different nations, and each one had their own little autonomous states with their own princes, and each one was directly owned governors that was directly responsible to the Persian Emperor, and so the Jews had their own governor, who was a descendant of the House of David. Um, and so they had their own Reish Galuta. Um, the... Um, the Reish Galuta at the time, I believe his name was Marchanina, and um, so the and he had his own standing army, like all the governors did in throughout the Persian Empire, and they had their own police force and they kept their own rules. And um, this was on the Euphrates River, around where the town of Fallujah is today. It was a very large Jewish state, and so um, and so the uh, Reish and so the Persian emperor asks the Reish. Galuta says, I will, if you can raise an army of Jewish men and uh, to fight alongside the Persian army, I will give you, make you king of Israel, and I will allow you to rebuild your temple. Pretty good deal. He manages to raise an army of 200 men. And... Um, 200,000, sorry, 200,000 men. <laughs> 200,000 Yeah, 200,000 men. 200,000, big army. And then he says, not only that, he manages to get Jews in Israel. He gets Jews in Israel um, to create a fifth column in Israel to fight on behalf of the Persians to help drive the Romans out. <coughs> and the Persians successfully, um, successfully capture Israel and successfully drive the Romans out. Of, uh, uh, successfully drive the Byzantines out of Israel, and the Jews are very excited now. It's now um, 550 years from when the temple had been destroyed, and they now have an opportunity to rebuild the temple. Unfortunately, the Persian emperor, who now suddenly finds himself in control of a large Christian area, Syria and Israel, um, Lebanon, which at the time was mostly, it was Byzantine, it was mostly Christians, Greek-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Christians. And um, so uh, he, f and he quickly realizes that favoring the Jews, who are a minority in the area by now, um, is not smart politics, especially since the Byzantines are fighting back to get the area back. And so if he wants the locals to if he wants to bring them over his, to his side, he better not be so good to the Jews. So he changes his mind and he says, you know what, forget that idea of you becoming king of Israel and rebuilding the temple. And so the Jews are very upset and the Jews decide to rebel. And this was the final Jewish rebellion in Israel and um, they rebel against the Persians and declare independence and the Persians, with help of the Christian locals, put down the rebellion very quickly. They kill out the entire family of the Rish Galuta, um, uh, except for one person escapes. And the uh, whole story of what happened with him. But uh, they kill out the entire family of the Rish Galuta, and um, they kill many, many, many Jews. <coughs> Much of the 
Jewish community in Israel that had been there, that which had, had been dwindling for 300 years, but the community was still numbered a few hundred thousand, and those that had survived, many of them were now killed. Some years later, the Christians come back with vengeance. The Byzantines capture Israel back from the Persians and move even further and um, manage to um, reach even Mesopotamia. And the, um, when the Christians come to Israel, they kill out all the Jews left in Israel. And that essentially put an end to the Jewish community in Israel that had been there since Joshua. The Jewish community essentially um, was finished. There was nothing left, or all very, very little. Um, there was maybe a handful of Jews left after that. Um, Jews came back, don't worry. They didn't work on for very long. <laughs> Sorry? It's pretty depressing, all these things. Yes. So this is... After that, after that rebellion and after the Jewish community essentially left Israel, um, after that, Jews essentially, essentially believe that they will never get back to Israel before the coming of Mashiach, before a savior comes that has been spoken about in our prophets many times that will rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But without that, it's not coming Anytime. It's not, it's going to come soon, but it's not going to come in a kind of natural chain of events. Um, not long after that, the Muslims come in the late 600s and capture um, the Persian Empire, capture, um, uh, capture Israel from the Byzantines, and um, they uh, destroy the churches that are found on the Temple Mount and build mosques. Of, uh, mosques at first, they build a um, they build the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the eastern, on the uh, southern end of the Temple Mount, where um, Herod's, as we had shown, where Herod's um, stables had been, or his, um, where Herod's um, basilica had been, basilica had been, and then um, they build a big mosque in the in the early 600s in the center of the Temple Mount, um, called the Dome of the Rock. It wasn't actually a mosque; it was more kind of a monument to the Temple in Jerusalem. They see themselves again as the new Jews. Um, so that lasted Jews came back with the Muslims um, Jews had actually helped the Muslims capture Israel um, though without any grand, grand promises this time and uh, more particularly Persia which where life had gotten very difficult for Jews and um, the Muslims are at first good to Jews and many Jews move to Israel but they don't have any access to the Temple Mount um, after that life in Israel is okay for some 400 years until, um, until in the 10 hundreds, the Crusaders come to Jerusalem and the Crusaders for a period of about 200 years, the Crusaders come in waves, chase the Muslims out of Jerusalem, Muslims come back, there's wars back and forth for 200 years and Jews come, we have accounts of Jews who visited and there was a very small community anywhere in Israel. Um, kind of little bits and pieces in different towns. Uh, the Ramban describes coming, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman came in the mid-1200s, right after the Crusaders, and he recounts finding barely a minion in Jerusalem. Um, the Maimonides came in the, uh, Maimonides comes in the late 1100s, and he finds, this is during the Crusaders, and he finds, um, and he finds also Jerusalem is very dangerous and he cannot settle there and he moves to Egypt. Um, we mentioned Yehuda Halevi, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi two weeks ago who came to Jerusalem. So 
It was a very um, unstable time. In the mid-1200s, the Mongols um, capture all of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, and they slaughter, as they did in many towns they come to, they just slaughter everyone they see. And um, again, Christians and Muslims, whoever they could find. And so um, life becomes very, very difficult for people living in the Holy Land. And uh, the Muslims soon come back once the Mongols have left. And uh, in the mid-1200s, and uh, first Egypt comes back and controls Israel. And um, once again, they rebuilt their mosques. And um, Jews are not allowed to um, go on the Temple Mount. And this situation continues um, until in the 1500s or the late 1400s, the Ottoman Turks um, build a, the Ottoman Empire and they capture Israel. The Ottoman Turks, among the smartest things that they did in helping them build the Ottoman Empire is they invited all the persecuted Jews who were thrown out of Spain and Portugal and all these other places to bring their expertise to the Ottoman Empire and build the Ottoman Empire. There were many wealthy Jewish financiers and traders and um, other Jewish uh, uh, experts who come to, the, who come to uh, Istanbul to um, help build the empire. And um, among the things that they do is they encourage the Ottoman leaders to allow Jews back to build, rebuild Israel. And Jews come in great numbers back to Jerusalem, back to Safad, Tiberias, and many other um, ancient Jewish cities. Um, Jews have now moved back to and um, the Jewish community gradually grows. The Ottoman Empire falls apart. It gets really bad in Jerusalem. But Jews continue to move to Jerusalem in greater and greater and greater numbers. Um, and uh, until the, uh, late eight, the late 1800s, when a movement in 1882, a movement begins first in Russia, and then spreads to all of Europe. Um, first it was called Bilu, and then later um, evolved into Zionism. Um, a movement to rebuild the Jewish Holy Land and large numbers of Jews come back and very quickly within a period of about 40 years they have built cities and towns and farms um, throughout Israel. Um, the Temple Mount though is still in the hands of the Ottoman Turks and uh, they do not allow Jews to go up on the Temple Mount. Um, they, do, um, they did allow one Jew went up, Moses Montefiore went up, uh, but as we'll see he got into a lot of trouble for it. And, um, and, uh, but Jews are not allowed to go into the Temple Mount at all. In um, 1948, Israel declares independence. First time there's a Jewish state um, since the destruction of the Second Temple. First time there's an independent Jewish state. The first time we even attempted to create a state since the 600s, uh, so 1400 years, and we create a Jewish state. However, unfortunately in the war, um, Israel loses um, the old city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. Jordan makes it illegal for any Jew to live in Jordan and makes it, kicks all the Jews out of the old, out of the old city and other cities that, uh, other parts of Jordan that Jordan had captured where Jews had lived, kicks all the Jews out, kills many of them, and makes it illegal for any Jew, even Jews are not even allowed to visit, even Americans that visited Jordan, if they said they were Jewish, were not allowed to, were not allowed to visit the uh, Jerusalem or the temple. Still illegal today for Jews to live in Jordan. And so no Jew was allowed to go to the temple. Some Jews went disguised as Christians, but you were not allowed to go to the temple or even to the western, western wall of the temple, which is the only remaining wall, which is the wall where we uh, traditionally have prayed for the last 500 years. So we, um, 
so finally, 1967. 1967, Israel captures um, the old city of Jerusalem. The Jordanians started. They started shooting at Israel. Israel didn't want to have to fight with Jordan, um, but they decide to um, capture. Um, they capture Jerusalem, capture all of what today what the Jordanians called the West Bank, West Bank of the Jordan. The Israelis call it Judea and Samaria, uh, but the ancient Israel, including um, the parts of Jerusalem that the Jordanians had captured, including the Temple Mount, is now under Jewish hands for the first time. They had stormed the Temple Mount itself. Troops had gone on the Temple Mount, and now um, Jews were finally able to pray at the Western Wall, which is where Jews had prayed for hundreds and hundreds of years. We had prayed at the Western Wall. The Midrash had told us that the God's presence is found at the Western Wall. We had always prayed there, and so we went back to praying on the Western Wall. Many Jews, though, felt, why should we pray on the Western Wall? We own now the Temple Mount. Israel is the Temple Mount. Jews should be praying on the Temple Mount itself. Why should they pray on the West only at the Western Wall? So, and indeed, there were many Jews that were going on the Temple Mount. So, and indeed, one of the, um, one of the rabbi of the, U of the IDF at the time, Rabbi Shlomo Goren, and um, who later became the chief rabbi of Israel, strongly encouraged, let's build a great synagogue on the Temple Mount where Jews are able to pray on our Temple Mount. So, so, um, so but at the time, the Israeli rabbinate, the two, two, two chief rabbis at the time, together with almost every major rabbi in Israel at the time, um, probably the only thing in which so many rabbis that were able to agree on. Um, a few weeks after um, the Six-Day War, put out a ruling, a halachic ruling, that it is forbidden for Jews to go onto the Temple Mount. No Jew should go onto the Temple Mount. Why is it forbidden for Jews to go on the Temple Mount? So, some years earlier, in the 1900s, mid-1900s, Moses Montefiore. Moses Montefiore was the wealthiest Jew in England, probably one of the wealthiest Jews in the world at the time. And he used his wealth to help Jews around the world. Particularly in Israel, he really helped build, this is in the 1850s, he really helped build Israel. He built the first town, the first, um, the first um, development outside of the old city of Jerusalem, encouraging the city to expand because it was overcrowded. And being such a wealthy, famous Jew, the Muslims let him go onto the Temple Mount. He goes up on the Temple Mount. He comes down to discover, he comes to Jerusalem, and he is told, the rabbis of Jerusalem have excommunicated you for going on the Temple Mount. He runs, and that, you can imagine the guts that it would take to excommunicate the wealthiest Jew in the world who is supporting the community in Jerusalem. He comes running to the rabbis. He was a religious Jew. He comes running to the rabbis. What did I do wrong? What happened? They said, you went on the Temple Mount. He said, what's wrong? They said, don't you know you're not allowed to go on the Temple Mount? They said, no one ever told me. How should I know? I thought we didn't go on the Temple Mount because the Muslims didn't let us. They let me go, so I went. They said, oh, if so, we take away that excommunication. But he was forbidden from going on the Temple Mount. Why so? The reason is the Temple Mount is extremely holy. There were rules of who was allowed to go onto the Temple Mount. 
Not everyone was allowed to go on the Temple Mount. There were very, very strict rules as to who is allowed to go on the Temple Mount. And even if you went on the Temple Mount, where you were allowed to go on the Temple Mount. Indeed, this question had been asked in the 1600s, or 1500s, sorry, by Rav, Rav David ben Zimra. Rav David ben Zimra, known as Radvaz, was the chief rabbi of Egypt in the 15, in late 15, early 1600s. And he was, um, the, at the time, um, during this period, the Ottoman Empire controlled Israel and Egypt, and Egypt was kind of the larger community, was larger than the community in Israel, and he essentially resolved most of the legal questions for Israel as well. And so what happened was the Muslims needed um, craft work done on the Temple Mount, and they wanted to hire Jewish craftsmen to work on the Temple Mount. So the Jewish community in Jerusalem sent him a question, can Jews go on the Temple Mount? So he said, well, it is complicated, very complicated. Here's the rule. The Temple Mount can be split into three different areas. Three different areas. There is the area where the building of the temple itself stood. That area, only Kohanes are allowed to go onto the Temple Mount, are allowed to go to that area where the temple itself stood. Only Kohens, priests, and only if they are ritually pure, if they are tahar, ritually pure. Second area on the Temple Mount is the area of the Azaros, the courtyards. If you recall, there was a large courtyard where the altar stood and where the sacrifices were offered. And then there was a courtyard in front of it known as the women's courtyard. Um, which, and so that area, which was actually surrounded by a fence, which kind of extended the area, um, a small fence, which was kind of where nobody could go past that fence. That area, only Jews are allowed. Non-Jews are not allowed in there. And only if they are ritually pure. You don't have to be a Kohen, but you have to be ritually pure. Now today, most of us have come in contact with dead bodies. You come in contact with dead bodies, have ever been to a cemetery, have ever been in the same building as a dead body, have you been to a hospital and the hospital is a morgue, you are ritually impure, tame. And so you cannot go into that whole area. The only way to become Tahar would be to be sprinkled with water that would be mixed with ashes of a red cow, which we don't have. So, so we are all Tameh, we are ritually pure. We cannot go into the whole area of the temple courtyards, wherever that was. Where we can go is onto the rest of the temple mounts. Temple mount, that's the third area, the temple mount itself. There we can go. However, even then, there are certain rituals, if you're a Tameh by coming in contact with a dead person, you could still go there on the Temple Mount. But you cannot go if you are Tame from any, um, from any what we could call personal um, uh, impurities. In other words, impurities that come from certain things that happen to yourself. What are those? And you, so you, cannot, you could go up to the area of the courtyards today, so long as you don't have any personal impurities. What do those personal impurities entail? So there are basically two that are relevant. One is a man or woman who has a, the impurity known as carry. And the other one is specifically for women, a woman who has the impurity known as nida. 
So anyone who has those impurities cannot go onto the temple mount. So it says Rabbi David ben Zimra, well, we know about where the temples, where the courtyards of the temple stood. Um, it was about in the center of the temple mount. So outside of that area, you could go if you don't have, if you are neither Nida nor Keri, you could go, that is okay. So based on that ruling after the Six Day War, Rabbi said, well, here's the deal. You can't go on the Temple Mount. You can't go on the Temple Mount. You cannot go anywhere for sure where the courtyard of the temple would have stood, which is anywhere in the center of the Temple Mount that it could have possibly stood. Around the perimeter of the Temple Mount, the courtyard didn't stand there. So you could go around the perimeter. That's okay to go around the perimeter, but only if you do not have and the impurity of Keri or Nida. What are the impurities of Keri or Nida? So the impurity, the impurity of Keri is for any man who has had seminal discharge, is not allowed to go on the Temple Mount until they go to the mikveh. So they have to first go to a mikveh. To go to a mikveh itself is a complicated process, um, which women today still do every month. And um, you have to clean yourself very well, make sure there is no dirt on you, make sure there's no knots in your hair. And it's a whole process that one has to go through. And then you go to the mikveh, and then you would, um, then a man would be able to go on the temple, then a man would be able to go on the temple mount. A woman who has had intercourse will also have the impurity of carry because it involves having semen inside you. She would have to wait 72 hours for it to um, evaporate or leave her until, and then she could go to the mikveh 72 hours after intercourse, and she could go on the temple mount. In addition, that's one ritual impurity that you cannot have. You've got a problem. You've got to cut it off. Yeah, you've got to cut it off. <laughs> yes, you've got to also cut your, you can't have your nails long. Those are rules that <coughs> apply today also for women going to the mikveh. Uh, we, we use mikveh here. We're going to do a thing, uh, um, tour of the mikveh in a couple of weeks. So that, that rule applies for everyone. For, um, for, um, uh, for that, that's one ritual impurity that you have to worry about. The other ritual impurity is nida. Any woman who has her menstrual discharge, or even who, um, or, or even if she has a, um, if she spots and she has blood, um, she sees blood. She, um, the woman, she must count seven clean days. Um, well, she, you first wait five days, and then you count. We did a class on this some time back, and then must count seven clean days and then must go to the mikveh, and only then can she go on the temple mount. And then in addition, a man can also have a ritual impurity of nida. It transfers, if a man has intercourse with a woman who is a nida, then he must wait seven days, count seven days, and go to the mikveh himself. So for both men and women, they cannot go on the temple mount if they have either of these two ritual impurities, carry or nida, they must wait till they're over, go to the mikveh, then they could go on the temple mount. Yes? So the original, the original site of the temple where no one but a Kohen could go, what about when the temple was there? Was they kept all these rules. They were very strict about it. We have a lot of ancient records about how they so kept the these rules. So the temple was there, only the Kohen could be in the temple. 
in the temple building of the temple itself, yes. Inside the building. Inside the building. Only Cohen's work. Yes. Not to the area where the temple itself was. So the Al-Aqsa Mosque they could go into, the Dome of the Rock they couldn't. Not to the area where the temple courtyard was. So it depends on where it was. That, that was the answer of the Rabbi Rab 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 Dov Ben Zimmer at the time. Did any so go Apparently. So, uh, so because it is so complicated to follow the rules of going up to the Temple Mount, the rabbis in Israel said, it's not going to work if you let people go. No one's going to follow the rules. Transgressing the going to the Temple when impure is a very severe prohibition. It is not a prohibition only on the individual. The entire community must ensure that no one goes to the Temple impure. The only way to do that today, realistically, is just say no one go up. There is no reason to go up. Yes, it'd be nicer to pray on, pray on the Temple Mount. It's closer to God, but because you will, and many people will end up transgressing and sinning as a result, it's not worth it. So the rabbinate and most rabbis at the time, and still today, are of a unanimous, almost unanimous view that it is forbidden to go to the Temple Mount today. There are a handful of rabbis that said, well, it is such a holy place to go. We really want to go pray. We will make sure that we go up and we follow all the rules properly. And they built these organizations to ensure they follow the rules and we will go up to the Temple Mount. So from a strict Jewish legal rule, one, can technically go up to the Temple Mount if you follow all the rules. However, from a practical perspective, most rabbis forbid it because ensuring that everyone keeps the rules is not realistic. And the fact is today, most Jews that go up to the Temple Mount go up without keeping those rules. So go without keeping the rules. That's the fact today. There's actually a big sign before you go on that it is forbidden for Jews to go onto the Temple Mount. So we do not go onto the Temple Mount today. We will have to wait for Mashiach to come for us to rebuild the Temple and keep all the rules of purity. Again, we don't go to the Temple today. Temple Mount today. Um, although, as I said, there are some rabbis that do encourage it. They are a very, very small minority. Um, most do so for political reasons. And um, generally, um, most rabbis believe that um, Jewish law trumps politics. And it is more important to follow God's will than to show our sovereignty over the Temple Mount in any way. Because um, ultimately, it is the Torah that is our real, um, what really, the real Jewish sovereignty or the real Jewish power. Uh, I wanted to get to rebuilding the Temple today. Um, I didn't get a chance to get to get to there. I'm just going to cover it really quickly. I know I'm over time, and uh, maybe we should do a whole class on it. Um, we can't rebuild the temple. Firstly, it would start a war with the Muslims for whatever reason. In 1967, when they captured the Temple Mount, they allowed Jordan to retain sovereignty over the Temple Mount. Um, and um, it, today, Israel does not have any sovereignty over the Temple Mount, although they can control who goes there. Um, they cannot control what they build on the Temple Mount. Um, and so it would be very problematic for Israel politically to build it. In theory, if we w the Muslims would let us build it, could we build the third temple? The short answer is no. Um, 
Being ritually impure is not a problem to build the third temple because you're allowed to build the temple when you're, you are impure. In fact, in order to slaughter the red cow and get the ashes and to make ourselves pure, we must first have a temple. So you're allowed to build a temple when you are ritually impure. That is okay. Um, if nobody is pure, that's okay according to Jewish law. We have two other major problems, which I'm not going to get into great detail. I'm just going to touch on them. Two other major problems that would not let us halachically, from a Jewish legal standpoint, build the temple. Um, one, is, um, one is that the altar must be and the temple spot must be exactly where the original was. We do not know definitively where it was. We perhaps may discover if we dig underneath but for now, we do not know, and we cannot guarantee that we will know even if we do dig. Even circumstantial evidence doesn't work in Judaism. It's going to have to be very, very strong evidence, uh, which you don't usually get from archaeological digs. Um, can we dig today is a great question that um, Jonathan, I think, asked a few weeks ago. And um, in short, while the Temple Mount is forbidden to go on, Tunnels under the Temple Mount actually do not have the same sanctity of the Temple Mount itself. So we would actually allow to be halakhically allowed to dig under the Temple Mount so long as we don't go on the surface. So that would be perhaps not a problem. Um, uh, the other major problem that we have is to, once you have the Temple, you have to run the service in the Temple. To run the service in the Temple, you need Kohens or priests, descendants, um, male descendants of Aaron. Now, of course, everyone knows we have a lot of Cohens today, right? We have a lot of Cohens today. The problem is that for a Cohen to serve in the temple, according to Jewish law, they have to be able to prove they are a Cohen. How do you prove you're a Cohen? So when the temple stood, the way you proved you were a Cohen is you brought witnesses that you were your father's son and that your mother was someone who was, Cohens were allowed to marry because they had limits, they don't allow to marry divorcees and um, that your mother's not a divorcee, and they weren't allowed to marry converts. So you bring proof that your mother was, you're someone a Cohen's allowed to marry, your father is a Cohen, you go to the courts, and then you got a document that proved you're a Cohen. And you take your father's document and witnesses, and then you can prove you're a Cohen, and every Cohen before they serve in the temple had to get this document proving that they were a Cohen, a certification that they're a Cohen. Now, after the temple was destroyed, we stopped certifying Cohen's. So all Cohen's today are uncertified. Uncertified Kohens, we call them Kohen Chazaka. They're presumed to be Kohens. We presume they're Kohens. They do the priestly blessings every, on the holidays. We, they do that. And um, they do the redeeming of the firstborn and get the first Torah read, get called up the first Torah reading in the synagogue. But they cannot serve in the temple until they can prove it. Today, no Kohen can prove they are a Kohen. So, sorry? Even if you had a court, you still couldn't prove it. Why not? You just, yeah. you just said, I'm Kohen's son, a grandfather of the Kohen. How would, you how would you bring witnesses to go back 100 generations? What about you DNA testing? You just said so you have to prove your reason. What about DNA? <laughs> DNA testing can't definitively prove. We don't know what the original Kohen's DNA was. The fact that all co most Kohen's today have similar DNA doesn't prove anything. That's circumstantial you would need to know the original male Cohen's DNA. So it wouldn't, you can't, no. So it's, it's not provable. So it's another problem that doesn't allow us to build the temple today. So instead we will have to wait for a Mashiach, a redeemer who will come, who will be a prophet, who can both with prophecy tell us who is a Cohen and tell us the right spot
to build the temple as well as resolve all the other political problems and we will have to wait for him to rebuild the temple. So sorry when we, we went over time, but a lot of important things. So once again, next week we won't.